welcome to Fractal Lab's second podcast. I'm Isabel, and today we will be speaking about payments. For that, I'm joined by a very special guest. Nina Mohanty is currently at Kleiner in Strategy and Expansion and worked previously for MasterCard and Starling Bank. She's a very famous fintech personality and has even featured on the Women in Fintech Power List. Nina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Isabel. Very excited to be here. You had some great positions in the past. Styling Bank, Digital Strategist at MasterCard, and now Strategy and Expansion at Kleiner. Could you tell us a little bit more about your current position and also what has brought you into the payments world? Sure. Um, gosh, where's, where's a better, where's a good place to start? Um, I guess the really fun place to start is that I... I never expected to work in fintech. I never sought it out. Um, in fact, I actually thought that I would never end up in financial services or technology. Um, I grew up in the Silicon Valley, which is where I am currently as we record this. And my parents were um, both engineers in the dot-com boom. My brother is an engineer um, and I am very much uh, right-brained to their left brain. I am much more um, creativity, artistic kind of uh, loved being in the arts growing up and um, that sort of thing. And so I never expected to end up here. And to be honest, I, uh, well, growing up wanted to be a diplomat and uh, actually worked um, for the, or at the US Embassy under the Obama administration as my first job out of uni, which was an incredible experience. Um, but I actually fell into FinTech. And I, when I say that, people tend to get frustrated sometimes or they'll laugh depending on who they are. Um, sometimes I go and speak to people in uni or doing their masters and they're like, how did you get into FinTech? And like, you know, give us all the tips and tricks. And did you take the course at Oxford? And I, I tell them that I fell in and they get really frustrated because um, there, there was no shortcut. There was no like one thing that I did. Um, when I applied for a job, um, I was doing my master's and where I did my master's, everyone kind of just gravitated towards consulting. So they would try and get job, you know, the big three or at an investment bank. Um, and I actually applied, I was so desperate for a job <laughs> at the time, and I really wanted to stay in the UK. Um, so I was so desperate for a job and I was applying for anything at that point. I, I even started applying for like jobs at banks, like high street banks. And um, one of the stories that I tell people is I applied for one of the high street banks, which will not be named. We will <laughs> leave them unnamed. Uh, but they actually rejected me in like less than 24 hours. I joke with friends you know like did they even read my cv i'm not quite sure but um i kept kind of applying for jobs and then we had the school i went to had a relationship with mastercard and they kind of said oh you know we're looking for people um, for an intake this summer and i thought i don't even know what mastercard is um at the time i thought mastercard was a bank it's not, <laughs> FYI, for everyone who is not aware, MasterCard is not a bank. Um, it's what we refer to as a network or a scheme. And so I went in and I got really lucky. Um, they had us come in and present an idea that would um, be an app that leveraged the MasterPass API. And I was able to prototype something that I thought would be fun and interesting. And they hired me. And so, it was a really exciting time because it was also the summer when I think 
London was really buzzing with fintech. Um, Monzo had launched as Mondo on the prepaid card. Starling was still an alpha. Revolut was on the MasterCard start path. And I actually sat back to back with the prepaid team over in Canary Wharf. And they're now called the FinTech and EMI team, but back then they were just a prepaid team. And it was just a super exciting time to be surrounded by these exciting businesses that were trying to use technology to build better financial propositions, to help people live financial, better and healthier financial lives, to help businesses as well. And um, that really is kind of what made me fall in love with FinTech more broadly. Um, then I continued working for MasterCard, had the opportunity to work in Vienna um, as a digital strategist, which was amazing. And also I just love Vienna. And uh, when I came back, I took on a role with Starling Bank, which was um, incredible. It was so cool to launch the current account, to work closely with so many brilliant minds, um, to work closely with Anne as well. Um, but then actually I was approached by the team at Bud, who are an open banking platform based in East London. And um, that is really where I fell into open banking more broadly. And like, what even is that? And I do really um, credit the founding team at Bud. I think Ed, the CEO, um, really had some foresight into where this market was going. And it was really, really exciting to be there and to work on building out our marketplace and building out this concept of like, what does marketplace banking mean? And, and if we talk about an API economy, what does that mean for banking? And what does that mean for market, marketplace banking more, more broadly? Um, and then I also got to work on our payments infrastructure and how exactly we were going to move money around. Um, and that was super, super interesting because I will be honest, I had some knowledge about digital payments, about card schemes and how card payments work and the traditional four party model and everything. But I did not really up until that point understand much about like the broader world of payments about, you know, backs and direct debit and the relationship there or faster payments. And um, the extent that I understood faster payments was that Vocalink was, you know, the the designated vendor in the UK for faster payments. Um, so it was a really interesting time to work at Bud. And then I ended up um, parting ways. We had grown so quickly and it was just amazing to be part of that team. I was, I think like employee 12 when I joined Bud. And by the time I left, we were like a hundred something. So it was a super, wow. super exciting like growth stage when um, I stumbled upon Klarna and I had used Klarna at that point, um, you know, the pay later proposition, but um, was given the opportunity to go and open up our offices in the West Coast in Santa Monica. And so I briefly moved home last year uh, with Klarna to open up that office, uh, but I missed London too much. So I came back <laughs> um, at the beginning of this year. And so I'm working um, much more cl closely to the core product of Klarna nowadays, um, not so much in the commercial side, but it's been super interesting. and. On the side, I have lots of passions and, and research and sit on various um, steering committees and different work with different charities and stuff. And they all kind of touch FinTech more broadly as well, um, but bring together all of my passions in one point. <laughs> 
yes. <laughs> wow, that all sounds super interesting. And especially your path through fintech and payments and how everything evolved while you were evolving as well. I'm sure that was a really interesting experience. And I mean, there's always new developments within the, the payment sphere. We went from cash to card to mobile banking, mobile payment transactions. Now with open banking, we've got account to account payments that could be next on the horizon. What is your guess about what's in store for payments next? Oh my goodness. Um, gosh, I, I am one of those people who would be terrible at being a futurist. <laughs> I always see that on like Twitter or LinkedIn, people are calling themselves futurists and I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I was obsessed with Greek mythology when I was young and uh, I always think of these people when they say they're futurists, I think of the Oracle of Delphi, oh, yeah. um, you know, and I'm like, oh yes, looking into my crystal ball and trying to divine the future. Um, listen, I think that payments, I think money in general, to really bring it back to first principles, um, again, <laughs> Greek, Aristotle, um, bringing it all the way back to first principles, payments, money is really a social interaction. I mean, money itself is a social construct, right? Like it, money doesn't exist. Um, a dear friend of mine, Dr. Louise Beaumont, uh, she recently called it like a collective hallucination. Like if you <laughs> okay. have to explain money to an alien who landed on, you know, on earth, she was like, oh, well, it's a collective hallucination. And, and that's exactly what it is. We at one point just decided, you know, we as a society, say that this is worth x amount and have extrapolated since then um so to me payments and money is inherently social um a lot of the times you know people wonder like we talk about credit scoring we talk about payments to merchants or merchant to merchant or whatever all of that i always like bring it back and i have this little image in my head of like an old school village, like pick anywhere in the world. It could be like, you're in Germany. It could be like a small Bavarian village, like <laughs> years ago, or it could be like, you know, my ancestors are Indian and Taiwanese, like small Indian village. And really it was like, okay, I'm going to, cows are a great form of currency. I'm going to trade you this cow for grain or something. Right. Yeah. Um, or I need, uh, cotton to be able to make textiles to then be able to sell and you actually back then had a relationship with these people um now obviously it's been obfuscated we've got abstraction layers in the way that modern money works but i think the future of payments will still be very very social and i think you see that across the board um as we look at actually the way that social is kind of interacting with fintech the Andreessen Horowitz podcast, they recently did an episode about like the, the intersection of social networks and like social media and how that inter interacts with like FinTech and where we're going. And you see a lot of interesting companies that are looking at um, trying to make um, social things work within their FinTech apps. Um, I think you even see that with, um, with SMEs and in business banking, there's an increasing drive towards making it much more social, much more human-based. Yes. Um, and then of course, you've got the underlying technology. I think 
at the very base, as I said, first principle, it's, it's about social interactions, but then the technology that brings us forward. So of course, open banking, um, we've seen that before it was very, everyone was using the account information service provider license and they were like, great, aggregate your accounts, cool. Um, and that was exciting, don't get me wrong. It was really cool to be able to see all of your accounts in one place, you know, so your investment account, if it was available, um, one of our first API integrations at Bud was with Wealthify. And so like seeing your ISA right there in the app alongside your HSBC account was super exciting. Um, and now we see, you know, like the likes of Yolt, Monzo is now offering, like everyone is offering some sort of open banking aggregation. That's really cool. But what, where it becomes really interesting is when we start to move, when we start to actually move money around, right? And so it was really cool. I think it was last year um, when Token and Santander um, initiated the first payment initiation um, call and response. And that was kind of like, we're off to the races. And now we're seeing um, really interesting things start to take place with open banking and payment initiation yeah. services. And I think that um, there actually is the consultation request right now um, with the open banking implementation entity around current payments and variable payments. And that really, really excites me because I think that that is driving us to a place where we have um, all this data, but we can start to move from a position of living in the past to living in the future. And what I mean by that is, um, I think a lot of things in banking are very backward looking, not just the people, <laughs> not, just, not just the people in leadership, um, but rather, you know, everything that we work on it, to this point right now has been very um, his, based on historical evidence. Yeah. Your credit score right now is very much based on your past behavior, right? Like, did you pay your rent in September of 2020? Did you pay it in October, November, et cetera, et cetera? But what I'd love to see is for us to move beyond that into a place of like forward thinking and starting to forecast things and be able to look forward and actually plan for that. And I think open banking is so exciting because it brings all of that together. So we can actually live in the past, the present, and the future, um, which seems like so somehow meta, but that's really what excites me about it. Um, the other thing that I think is super interesting, but I honestly don't know enough to really comment about it would be blockchain and distributed ledger technology. Um, I am super interested in it in terms of um, the underlying kind of like core, like transparent, but also private networks type of thing. Um, and I think that there's some really cool use cases right now in um, like trade finance, but I, I don't honestly know enough to really say if like, you know, we're all going to be using crypto to shop online in the near future. <laughs> I, I personally don't think that's going to happen, but I don't also don't know enough to say honestly, although as of today, I think Bitcoin has now broke $20,000 in value yeah. uh, for one Bitcoin. So who knows? Maybe that future is a lot, uh, lot closer than, than I expected. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot coming our way. And you were speaking a lot about social interaction. Obviously, financial interaction is different than human social interaction. But just on the back of that, do you think that COVID-19 was a factor that is changing or brought us into a sort of payment revolution and changed the way we deal with our payments. I mean, I see increasingly in shops asking for cart payments instead of cash and ATM machines or cart payment machines being criticized for being unhygienic. Do you believe that cards in general, cart payments are a phenomenon of the past and that COVID-19 has brought us in this new revolution on tactless payment? So I think that's really interesting because I don't think that coronavirus this pandemic has been like it's not binary it's not a switch right where it's like overnight all of a sudden we're all using it because it's been a long lead time right um it's been over a decade since contactless was introduced in the uk but it took about a decade to get towards like over half of transactions being made with contactless um and there is always an educational process that goes with any new technology. So whether that's open banking or contactless, um, digital payments. Um, I remember when I was working in Vienna with MasterCard, um, I was working with a brilliant woman who we were, we were discussing like, how do we educate people about why contactless is good for them? And you know, it was we didn't have the the quote not excuse, but like the reason of hygiene. Um, and so one of the one of the campaigns we did was um, a really fun, like short video advertisement of like a grandma, you know, at one of the stores, and she's kind of pushing her cart, say in the spa or something. She's you know going very very slowly and like slowly taking off all of her <laughs> items. And you know, like everyone knows what it's like to be behind to be behind Granny, but you can't you can't hurry Granny. It's disrespectful. Um, <laughs> then when she goes to pay, she immediately whips out her card and contact us, and it's boops so quick. And that was kind of the messaging that we used then. And I think about contactless in the UK was very much um, in conjunction with travel. So whether you were in London with TfL or in various other parts of of the country with the trams in Manchester or whatever, it was teaching the behavior of tapping, which was where the Oyster card was super, super useful in like getting, teaching people the behavior of tapping in. And so that when banks rolled out contactless, it was like, it's the same thing as an Oyster, you just tap, but in a store. Now we've seen this acceleration of like in a lot of countries, for example, like Germany, like Austria that are very cash heavy, very um, reluctant with cards to suddenly move very quickly into contactless in the US as well. I mean, it's been crazy where like Apple Pay and Google Pay first rolled out in the US, but they were so, I mean, they call it um, tap to pay in the US, which I find really strange, like just call it contactless like the rest of us. But um, it took a long time and they started at the end of last year. I was in New York um over over new year and i um i saw that they were rolling out contactless payments on the mta so on the new york subway and it was kind of like deja vu having seen this already in london right but then we've seen it accelerated now and i think similarly um i think it was uh patrick collison from stripe the the founder who was saying like we have seen the acceleration of e-commerce, he was speaking of specifically e-commerce, 
um, the same amount that you would see in the past like three to five years in the past three to five months during the pandemic. And so it's kind of that push that we all really needed. One thing that I'm really fascinated with, and I, I think that you at Fractal are also have looked into it is QR codes. Um, I am ethnically Asian, so my mother's Taiwanese, my father's Indian, but when I go back to Taiwan, like QR codes are everywhere, you know, and everyone thinks about it as like being a very Chinese thing, but like across Eastern Europe, you will, or sorry, Eastern Asia, um, you will find um, QR codes are very, very common, not just with WeChat or WePay, but like line pay and all this alipay and everything like it's it's been used for quite some time but all of a sudden we were seeing qr codes being used to check in for contact tracing i went to um what is that place in the shortage i i was very very cheeky um between lockdowns um and was able to get like a single table when we were allowed to eat out um and god what's it called it's it's owned by the um the french company that owns like mama shelter gloria 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 that's the one yes so i was i went and had their uh truffle pasta (laughs) oh my god it was so good if you get the chance go um and i was lucky right because normally they don't have any room for walk-ins but given everything i was able to go in and they had a qr code for you to um to look at the menu, but then also QR code to pay. And it was like super easy because they also had integrated Apple Pay. So I just said, boop, 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 done. And it's just mind blowing to me because when I was at MasterCard years ago, we were working so hard to launch this thing called Quicker, which has since been sunsetted. But it was basically exactly that where we were going around with um, Wagamama, Carluccio, like all of the, I think even um, Zizzy's maybe, can't remember now Byron Burger at a point where it was basically a pay at table app so you were able to see all of your um your orders and you could either like pay by what you order or you could just do like split the bill um and this was something that we were working on in earnest at MasterCard but we just couldn't get it to take off like people were just like oh what why would we do this like you know when we we would say something like i forgot what the stat was it was something like people spend an additional 12 minutes waiting for the bill to arrive and like no one wants to well it kind of depends if you're having a good time maybe you don't mind waiting for the bill to arrive but if you are trying to leave if you're you know in canary wharf and you need to get to your next meeting of course you want it to be quicker and so hence it was called quicker and it's so crazy to think in just a short amount of time how businesses had to adapt so quickly but that wasn't necessarily the case a few years ago. So I think it's been an accelerant um, for not just contactless, but for digital payments via QR code. Um, and maybe, well, well, definitely for e-commerce. And I think um, people forget that also just e-commerce is part of a digital payment experience as well. Yeah, it's actually so crazy thinking about that. We needed a pandemic for us to finally discover how great QR codes are. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I also believe that QR be the next big thing and QR payments in general. And we also spoke a lot about fintech companies. You're very active within this ecosystem. I saw that you're even co-hosting the Breaking Banks fintech podcast. You're also an advocate for fintech for good, bettering financial inclusion and literacy. Why is, in your opinion, fintech so important to push the economy forward and even just make all these new payment options that we just spoke about possible? 
Oh gosh, that's a really excellent question. Um, I think, I think it all boils down to one thing, and this will be a delight to the European Commission because this was kind of the whole point of PSD two, right? Um, well, one of the whole points was ultimately um, competition to foster competition. Um, the FCA and the Competition Markets Authority would probably agree. I mean, the FCA, they really do want to, to uh, what is the word that they use, like empower and embolden um, positive and safe, of course, uh, com competition within, within the industry. And we find that with competition comes innovation often, right? I think open banking is a perfect example of this, where if it was interesting. It was already mandated that it needed to be done. And we were quite lucky in this respect, right? Um, in the UK and, and Europe more broadly, where it's like the European Commission has said that this needs to happen because of PSD2. Fine, open banking needs to happen now. And the Competition Markets Authority said, yes, okay, we're going to take take over from here. And of course, corresponding across Europe, all these different organizations, uh, regulators jumped into action. Um, and they really held the bank's uh, feet to the fire. But I'm thinking now about when it was announced, I remember when like open banking happened, right? In like 2018, was it 2018? Yeah, no. 2018. 2018, yeah, wow, God. It's actually not that long ago, <laughs> but I remember like a lot of the comms that was coming out the messaging coming out from the incumbent banks was very um don't trust this or yeah. like don't trust open banking or don't give your um login and password to random people etc etc and it was a little bit fear-mongery if <laughs> i i'm honest about it and i was kind of like oh okay unexpected um or rather very expected and you saw all the startups kind of starting to push at that. You saw Yolt, although owned by ING, kind of moving forward. You saw the um, the Clios and the, all of these other apps kind of springing up and saying like, oh, well, we are going to leverage open banking. If you're not going to do it, we're going to do it. Um, and we saw that, I think, it kind of pushed everyone forward. And it got to the point where maybe high up in Canary Wharf, somewhere in an office, someone went, oh God, it's starting to look like people are taking this thing seriously and maybe we need to get on board. And how do we work open banking into our strategy? I bet you right now they're still scratching their heads wondering <laughs> how do we work open banking into our strategy and like how is it going to benefit us? Um, and I often, you know, I'll do like consulting calls here and there and people will ask me like, well, what's the use case for open banking? And I'm like, what? You're so late to the party. But I think, fintech is brilliant because i view fintech um in this particular industry of financial services um to be something like a pacer so i'm very new to running but um my friends have run marathons in the past and when you train as i understand it you have a pacer someone that kind of sets the pace for you and um is able to help you you've got to keep up with them but that helps you train to then run at that pace I very much view fintech to be the pacer for the financial services industry. If, you know, Monzo starts doing something, if Starling starts doing something, 
then the high street banks, I think, I bet some of their leadership will kind of be like, eh, whatever, they're small, they have a few million customers, that means nothing to us. But at the same time, someone in that organization is going to have a bit of FOMO and they're going to go, uh-oh, we need to get on board and we need to start planning for this. Um, I think there was something like Monzo this year, or was it Starling? I think Monzo most more recently had the most number of current accounts switching mm-hmm. uh, over to the Monzo bank account or the current account. And if you are sitting in Canary Wharf in your bank headquarters and you start to see that people are actually leaving and all of a sudden they're all going to Monzo or they're all going to Starling, then you should start to get worried. And I also think as well, fintech um, more broadly is a super interesting one because it's not all consumer fintech, right? Um, A lot of the fintech that is super interesting to me are the players that are working on infrastructure. So like I am completely smitten with the likes of Rails Bank. I am smitten with Form 3. Um, Form 3 announced today that they are now an official partner with MasterCard, which is exciting. Um, People at Stripe, obviously, (laughs) for example, for infrastructure, but I am so smitten with them because they are building out the really um, necessary but unsexy parts of making financial services work to make money move. And because of this, this is super exciting because they are lowering the costs, the barriers to entry for other fintechs. So if I want to go and start a challenger bank tomorrow, I could go ahead and like tap on Rails Bank's shoulder, or I could go chat up Modular, or I can go chat up Contest. There's so many providers now who are doing it at such a lower cost that I don't have to go and do what Anne and Tom did to start Mom's Own Starling. I can just go and license someone else's infrastructure and kind of as they, I mean, it's in the name itself for Modular where it's built to be like bits and pieces that you plug together and then you connect the APIs and all of a sudden you have a really interesting uh, proposition, which therefore means I can serve very niche groups of people. Um, Something that my friend Koki and I, uh, Koki Hasiotis, she, I think she coined the term, I don't know if she said it first or got it from someone else. She's called, she calls them communities of affinity. Um, And she gave a really good example, which was, maybe I want to start a bank for fans of Beyonce, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And um, I go ahead and she was using the US as an example, but say I I want to do that and I love Beyonce and I want the Beehive to have a bank. And so I'm going to go um, and say, hey, Rails Bank, I'm going to go build this bank and I can then be very specific about it. So say I want it to target not just Beyonce fans, but like really cater to black women across Europe or in the States or whatever. And like make sure that they get cash back when they shop um, at black owned businesses or, you know, whatever, or, you know, they get um, points for going to Beyonce fitness classes, who knows, whatever. Right. But because the bar has been lowered in terms of the amount of money I need to invest into the infrastructure, I'm able to build a proposition that is very focused on a particular subset of people. Um, Another business that I'm super impressed with is called Daylight. Um, They're based in the US, but they're building a neobank for the LGBTQ community. 
and I love that because it's like they don't have to worry about building all the the nitty gritty and stuff they can focus on doing like the origination and underwriting and all the stuff that is very niche and very particular to that community and the problems that they face based on whatever discrimination probably they face and therefore they can serve them really really well much better than say a Barclays that has to cater to everyone so um that is why I'm really interested and 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 smitten with fintech writ large yeah, well, I completely agree. And I also think that it is amazing how fintechs just cover all these niches in the society that haven't been covered before. And I see such a bright future for fintechs because the more power they get and the more experience and the more there are, the more niches that can be covered. And banks also, I believe, will, will be getting more and more open to, to partnering with fintechs and supporting them. And you can see that banks creating fintech groups and departments and just having, yeah, just having workshops to, to teach themselves about open banking and what, what can be done. So I think there's a really bright future ahead for, for the industry. But this sadly already brings us to the end of our podcast. Um, thank <laughs> you so much, Nina, for joining us and providing us with your views and opinions on payments and, and fintech. And thank you to everyone who has tuned in. And I hope you have enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I hope we have provided you with some interesting insight and perspective on payments. Thank you so much, Nina. <laughs> Thank you so much. And if anyone ever wants to get in touch, you can do so via LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. Feel free to DM me. Um, I am working on a project right now. So if you are someone who is passionate about serving the underserved or have some engineering skills that you are willing to, to offer up, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you.